2 Kings chapter 8. And we'll read the whole chapter. Listen, this is God's word. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can. For Yahweh has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, The man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, Take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from the sickness? So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camels loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from the sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, you shall certainly recover. But Yahweh has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, Yahweh has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. 
He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. But yet Yahweh was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Jehoram passed over to Zaire with all his chariots and rose by night, and he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. Then Libna revolted at the same time. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. She was a granddaughter of Amri, king of Israel. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. He went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hosea, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. Well, I was preparing for this message and looking ahead to what we are going to do next week, I allowed myself a moment of nostalgia and reflection. Over 20 years ago, I was in Mr. Schultz's shoes, trying to finish, finish up seminary and taking all the exams required of me for ordination in the presbytery. And one of those exams tested my knowledge of the English Bible. And one of the questions on that exam told me I was to list in order all the kings of both Judah and Israel and to indicate whether or not each of them was a good king or a bad king. And the question, shockingly, was an all-or-nothing kind of question. It was worth one point. Get them all right, you get the point. Miss one, you get nothing. At the time, I did not remember every king's name. I did not have perfect recall of the line of succession. I couldn't even remember which king was good or bad in every case. And yet, here I am, an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And I tell you all that as a way of encouraging you. It is not required of you to be able to list 
or even to be able to pronounce all of the names of all of the kings of Israel and of Judah in order in order to be a Christian. This, my friends, will not be on your final exam. But this you must know, and this you must believe. Jesus Christ is the perfect and good king who emerges out of the mess of these royal families and out of the rubble of the nations over which these kings ruled. Why? Because God remembered his covenant promises to his people through David that he would always have a king on the throne. And he has for us an inheritance, a place over which this king will rule. And he's creating us subjects for that kingdom to be ruled over by this king. And the inheritance he has for us will, will never perish or spoil or fade away. And Jesus is the one who will defeat the enemy, who will lead his people in righteousness and holiness to worship. And Jesus is the one who is and who will make you whole. As we return to 2 Kings in chapter 8, you may have noticed about midway through the chapter at verse 16, the storyline finally picks up where it had left off at the end of 1 Kings. In other words, we've had almost eight chapters of, of storyline telling us especially about Elisha, the transition from Elijah to Elisha, and the great and mighty deeds of Elisha, who came as the prophet of the Lord to the people of the Lord with the word of the Lord. And it's not until verse uh, 16 where we start to pick up with that more straightforward, almost chronological retelling of the history of the kings after whom the books are named. And then it will, as it has in the past, go back and forth between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, between this king reigning coterminously with that one and which one was good and which one was not so good and all this moving toward what we know to be the ultimate dispersion of the northern kingdom, the exile and return of the southern kingdom. But the story of the kings has been interrupted by this extended retelling of the life and times of Elisha. And he's going to remain on the scene and is still weaving through the story for the next few chapters. But notice that until verse 16, for these first eight chapters, we didn't always know who, which king was on the throne. Because we weren't told. We weren't told because God didn't believe it was that important for us to know which king was reigning and ruling over which part of the nation because God was wanting us to direct our attention and wanted to direct God's people and their attention to the word of God coming through the man of God, Elisha. Letting us know and letting the people of the Lord know they were to hear the word of the Lord. And they were to see the signs confirming the word of the Lord. And they were to turn or return to the Lord. And so now this chapter, verse, or chapter 8, uh, has, is a chapter of transition. 
And as we make the turn to look back toward uh, the lives of the kings, in this transitional section, I want to highlight three events in this chapter that will help move the story along. First, there's a restoration. Second, there's an asphyxiation. And third, there's the anticipation of an intervention. A restoration, an asphyxiation, and the anticipation of an intervention. We first met the Shunammite woman back in 2 Kings chapter 4. You might remember she was the wealthy, benevolent woman who would take in Elisha into her home with her, along with her husband, and she would actually provide rest and respite for him as he went back and forth through the land, convincing her husband even to build a room for him. And he stopped by regularly. And at one point, Elisha had asked his servant Gehazi what he could do to repay this woman for her kindness. And Gehazi made it known to Elisha, this woman did not have a son. Elisha promised the son, the son was born, the son goes out into the field, remember, with his father, and comes back, he's sick, and he dies. The woman goes to Elisha and pours out her heart. Elisha sends Gehazi, he goes, he's unable to revive the child. Elisha comes, the child is raised from the dead. She is disappeared off the scene, really, for a while, but all of a sudden we're told here that Elisha warns her of a coming famine, a seven-year famine. And again, part of the uniqueness of these chapters, these early chapters of 2 Kings, is there's not this concern about chronology or when this is happening. So we don't know how much longer after the sun is raised this happens, but Elisha warns her and says, you need to leave the land because a famine is coming. And we understand that to be a sign of God's judgment on his people. And Elisha's saying this to the woman who may be a widow by now, we don't know, but may be saying to her, is saying to her, here's a chance of escape. Here is what salvation will look like for you. You need to go outside of the land for seven years. So at Elisha's warning, she moves with her family to Philistia of all places. It's outside of the land of God's promise. It's away from the inheritance she and her husband and her son have, ex- have known and owned and enjoyed. And the problem is, when she comes back after the seven years, somebody has moved in. She's got a squatter. So she decides to go to the king to appeal for the restoration of her land and property and home. And verse 4 makes it sound like it just so happened, as she is on her way to the king, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, is hanging out with the king. And the king is saying to Gehazi, entertain me with stories about Elisha and his great and mighty acts. And so it happens that Gehazi is recounting uh, the story of Elisha, telling of some of the great things he had done. He made an axe head float. He made water good that was bitter, and so many other things. But it just so happens that just as Gehazi is telling him the story about how Elisha had restored the dead to life, 
lo and behold, the woman whose son he had, uh, had been restored to life shows up with the son to make her case to the king. And Gehazi says, well, would you look at that? My lord, O king, here's the woman, and here's her son. In God's providence and his orchestration of events, we have this little bit of impeccable timing, which almost makes you wonder if Elisha and Gehazi had worked behind the scenes with the woman to choreograph her appearance. In any case, on account of Gehazi's testimony about Elisha's acts and his reputation, and at the renewed witness and testimony of the woman who stands before the king with a son who had been raised from the dead, the king grants her requests, orders that her land and the value of the crops for the past seven years be restored to her. And it's an interesting little story because it, for example, at least, elevates the status of this woman, lets us know she receives her land back, she is made whole, and it seems to have something to do with her kind reception of Elisha in the past, her receptivity to his word, her desire to show hospitality to the servant of God, and it has something to do with her heeding the warning of the prophet to flee the land because of this coming famine. And it seems like a kind of feel-good story, and, and it is tied up with a little bow. But we're to recognize, I think, that this book of Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, was written to a nation in exile. And a nation returning from exile, it would be read to the people of God outside the land, and it would be reread by the people when they returned to the land. And it's not just a story about a woman who, along with her son, receives her land back and is restored everything she has lost, though it certainly is that, and this woman and her son benefit greatly from the king's benevolence, persuaded as he is by the prophet's word and act. But this story also serves as a story of hope for the nation. A nation that will be excluded from their land, from their inheritance, from their possession. And a nation returning to a land ravaged while they have been gone, and in some cases undoubtedly inhabited by squatters. Just as it this story will serve to remind us, to give us hope of the coming restoration and the renewal of all things when Jesus, our King, returns. This unnamed King, marveling at the acts and the words of the prophet of the Lord and presented with living proof of a resurrected Son, this King does the right thing. He restores and He makes whole the prophet's faithful friend. And it's a sign for us, as it is for the nation. Well, just as suddenly, the story takes a much darker turn 
And again, still outside of the storyline of the succession of kings in either Judah or Israel, and it's a story of asphyxiation. Elisha shows up in Damascus, the capital of Syria. He is outside of the land. Syria is just to the north of Israel, you remember, and had been, as we've seen through the past previous chapters, a thorn in Israel's side for years. And Elisha appears in Damascus, and we don't understand at first and have to go way back to remember why he's here, but he shows up in Damascus, the capital of Syria, and the king, Ben-Hadad, is sick. And Ben-Hadad sends his servant, Hazael, to meet Elisha for a divine revelation, a prognosis regarding his health. And he sends along with Hazael what can either be described as a muted bribe, generous enough to earn a favorable report, or it is one of the largest clergy honoraria in human history. Forty camels loads worth of good stuff from Damascus, probably more than we would be able to pay our associate pastor. But Elisha says to Hazael, What's the deal? And Hazael says, the king is sick. What do you know? And Elisha says, go say to him, he shall certainly recover. But then turns to Hazael and says, but you should know, he will surely die. And with that, Elisha begins to weep. It's a moment of pure pathos in the story. It's a super awkward moment. It's uncomfortable for Hazael. And, he, and it takes a moment for Hazael to, to ask, why are you weeping? And for us to learn with him, Hazael is weeping over the state of affairs in the nation of Israel and the future that waits for them. And it's because of a revelation he has received from the Lord. Everything is so upside down. The prophet of the Lord is in a foreign country, uh, one that should have been wiped off of the face of the earth, that was under the reign and rule of King David at the time. And he is speaking with the servant of the king of that nation, who doesn't even realize he's about to play a rather significant role in the history of God's people. Listen to Elisha's language as he answers Hazael. I know the evil you will do to the people of Israel. Remember, this is a servant of the king of Syria. I know the evil you will do to the people of Israel. You will set fire to their fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword. You will dash in pieces their small children. And you will rip open their pregnant women. Think about this for a moment. Hazael is going to do great evil. And not just great evil generally, which is still great evil, but great evil directed toward the people of God. And what should shock you even more, he is going to do this as a divinely appointed agent of God to unleash God's judgment on God's people in these evil despicable ways. 
And if all that seems shocking to you, and it should, it might help you to know this has been a long time coming. And to capture this moment and to capture something of the way the books of First and Second Kings are even constructed and put together, you'd have to go back with me all the way back to Mount Carmel and to Elijah. Remember that? Remember, uh, Elijah is on Mount Carmel during Ahab's reign, and there was what? A drought. And as a result, there was a famine. And there was a contest on Mount Carmel between Yahweh and Baal, between the one lonely prophet of Yahweh and all those prophets of Baal. And there was a great victory. That one prophet over all the others, or more really, the Lord God establishing his supremacy over Baal with fire from heaven. And you remember Elijah had had the prophets of Baal slaughtered and Ahab had returned, note this, Ahab returned to the city of Jezreel. And his wife, Jezebel, his wicked wife, the one who was over all the prophets of Baal, threatened to kill Elijah. Elijah escaped into the wilderness, felt very much alone, despaired even of life, and the Lord appeared to him, encouraging him about the presence of other Yahweh worshipers in the land, but then gave him three jobs to do. Three jobs. He said, here's what you need to do. You need to go back, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive... You shall anoint Hazael to be king. And you hear nothing about Hazael until this chapter, when Elisha comes up to to meet him. The second job Elisha was to do, or Elijah, Elijah was to do, the Lord said, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. That hasn't happened yet. Stay tuned. Third, Elijah was to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, to be prophet in his place. Check. So way back in the end of, toward the end of Elijah's life, he was to do those three things. Elisha clearly is in his place, having Elijah having ascended into heaven. And the Lord gave this promise attached to those three commands. The one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And of course, the first thing Elijah does is he finds Elisha, anoints him as his successor. There's no record of Elijah doing the other two jobs the Lord had appointed him to do. And now here, Elisha, as it were, picks up Elijah's mantle you get that. And he carries on with the mission. Elisha goes up to Damascus, clearly at the direction of the Lord, though that is not told us. And he meets Hazael, who is sent by the king to inquire of his health. And that story ends with Hazael on the throne. 
God had Hazael in his sights back in the wilderness with Elijah, and Hazael is going to be the instrument of God's judgment and his wrath on his people. Here in this moment, Hazael seems genuinely shocked. I'm just a lowly dog. How can I do such great things you're describing? And Elisha answers and says, well, here's how and why you're going to become king. And in two short verses, that's exactly what happens. He returns to Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad is eager to hear the report. What did Elisha say? Will I recover or no? Yes, he told me you would certainly recover. And Hazael has a night to think about it. And the next day he dips a cloth in water. He spreads it on the king's face. The king dies and Hazael becomes king. If you are wondering how... The Lord God uses absolute evil to accomplish His good purposes. If this story is distressing to you, and it should be, that the man of God goes outside of the nation of Israel and tells a servant of a king, of a foreign god, he's going to become king and he's going to do horrible, evil things against the people of God. And if that troubles you, or if you wonder how the Lord God could use absolute evil to accomplish good purposes for his own people, you only need to look at the death and resurrection of Jesus. The final section is an anticipation of an intervention. The final section of the chapter lets us know how bad things have become. And here's where it gets difficult to follow the ball, and I understand that, and this is probably partly why I got the answer wrong, but I'm still ordained, so you can still probably learn something from this, but it won't be on your quiz. Ahab had been the king of Israel during Elijah's life. You remember, he set, set, he set benchmarks for evil kings. Joram is his son. Meanwhile, down in Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, is king. And telling of this story, as this works out, telling of the story comes with a series of challenges and problems. The challenge, first of all, is that sometimes in this chapter, Jehoram, who has an H in his name, and so you know he's from Judah, which also has an H in his name, if that helps. Jehoram, sometimes his name is given in the short form, which is Joram which is the name of the king in the north. So we have two kings with the same name at the same time. But notice that seems to suit the occasion because they are indistinguishable for the evil that characterizes the reigns. Well, here's, a, here's the real problem, the bigger problem. Jehoram, king of Judah, sometimes called Joram, but the Jehoram marries the daughter of Ahab, that wicked king of the north, which makes him brother-in-law to Joram. So family dinners are interesting because you've got Joram and Joram or Joram and Jehoram, and you've got to keep that all straight. But Jehoram, down in Judah, stands out and I think is distinguished in this section in the telling of the kings of Judah because of his evil reign and because of the direct correlation to and the association with Ahab and his line. 
So not only, here's the message of this chapter, not only is uh, the nation of Israel or are the kings of Israel running the nation of Israel into the ditch, but now that last glimmer of hope for God's people, these two faithful tribes, more or less faithful tribes in the south, are also going and following the ten. That last glimmer of light, the southern tribes, they're being led by an evil king just like Ahab. In fact, married into the line, married into the family. So it's during this period the kingdom is really starting to unravel, and you get some hints of this because kingdoms nearby, long under the subjection of Judah's power, in fact, nations subdued by Joshua, start to rebel. The kings of Edom and Libna rebel against the king and reign of Judah. Verse 21, there is a perfect example. Joram there is actually Jehoram of Judah, tries to rein them back in, rule, rule over them again, and his efforts fail. And Joram dies a rather unpleasant death. And I will leave that to you to read in 2 Chronicles chapter 21 which is interesting because not much is said of Joram in 2 Chronicles, but here the writer at least has the dignity to say, are not all the deeds of Joram written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Well, they are, and they, it, that story does not end well. 2 Chronicles 21. Ahaziah, his son, reigns in his place, and he teams up with Joram, king of Israel. And they go, notice, to wage war against Hazael, and you already know how that's going to go. Because Elisha had said to Hazael, here's what you're going to do. You're going to burn their fortresses, destroy them, you're going to put their young men to the sword, you're going to dash into pieces their little ones, you're going to rip open their pregnant women. So now these two kings, also united in uh, marriages of convenience, are going to wage war against Hazael the suffocator. And it's not going to go well. Joram is wounded and he returns, notice, not to Samaria, but to Jezreel. That's supposed to jog your memory. That just happens to be where Ahab went after Mount Carmel. Ahaziah, king in the south, goes up to Jezreel to meet him as he recovers. And now you have these two Bad kings who've been badly beaten by Hazael the suffocator. They're in one place in Jezreel. And the stage is set for an intervention. There's only one loose thread to the story, but it's a rather large one. Remember, the Lord gave to Elijah three jobs. He was to anoint Elisha. Check. Done. He was to appoint or anoint Hazael to be king of Syria. That has happened now through Elisha. There's one thing remaining. He was to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, to be king over Israel. And that has not happened yet. But come back next week. And in the middle of all this, verse 19 of this chapter is the absolute key to this whole section and to the whole of Kings and Chronicles together. As bad as things were in the north, and perpetually bad, that 
northern kingdom, ten tribes, will be dispersed, and scattered, and never brought back together. And that little glimmer of hope, the two southern tribes, Judah, more or less, not quite as bad as the ten. But in this section, so indistinguishable, the kings have the same name. That nation, you'd wonder, perhaps God will do the same to them. And in verse 19, we are given this glorious little editorial note. Yet Yahweh was not willing to destroy Judah. For the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. These are, and what are coming, are dark days for the 12 tribes, 10 and 2. This little glimmering lamp is going to be the Davidic throne because Yahweh had promised. And he refused to break his promise. He is going to raise up a king. He's going to continue that thread of Davidic kingship. And as bad as the kings of Judah become, or as like unto the kings of Israel they become, yet the Lord will preserve. And so I said, even though you may not be able to remember all the date, all the kings' names, or be able to pronounce them, it's okay, you're in good company. It's all right that you will not remember every single one of them, but know this. Jesus comes out of this mess. Jesus comes out of this mess of royalty and these dark days of Israel and Judah. Because God had promised, God had promised he would always have a king. And so today you have a king, a resurrected, ascended, ruling king who is always good, who always defeated, defeats the enemy, who is the very one to whom God subjected to the profoundness of evil that good might come out of it for you and your salvation. And Jesus, the King, who will restore you and make you whole and even better than whole you can imagine in a renewed kingdom with expanded borders where every, every enemy is gone. Jesus comes out of this mess. And he comes out of it for you. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the twists and turns of Old Testament history. Thank you, Father, for the ways Jesus is our great and perfect king who destroyed the enemy, defeated death, and the one who makes us whole. Lord, receive our thanks. Allow us to follow him with new joyful fruitful obedience. We ask all this in Jesus' name and all God's people say,